through the Gospel of Mark entitled Simply Jesus, we have been amazed over and over again at the character and the goodness of the one we call Jesus the Christ. And we're going to be surprised again today, perhaps, at his amazing compassion and love. It's a great prophecy in Isaiah, and you know that much of the Old Testament is predicting the coming of the Messiah and that Christ is seen throughout the whole Old Testament. But Isaiah chapter 50 gives us this very interesting prediction into the sufferings of Christ. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Then we read in the next verse, Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And I love that phrase, I have set my face like a flint. That's a poetic way to talk about determination. And it speaks about Christ going to the cross, where he is going to suffer all of these atrocities. So through the Gospel of Mark, we've noticed Jesus doing many wonderful miracles. If you think of a mountain, he's climbing the mountain with the sayings that talk about his gospel and reveal his character and the miracles that show he's the Messiah. And then at the top, there's this declaration by Peter not just at the top of this imaginary mountain, uh, but at at the top of the land of Israel in Caesarea Philippi. He declares that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then he's transfigured on that mountain, and then down the mountain, he's on the road to Jerusalem, and he has set his face like a flint to die for your sins and mine. And that's what we're reading about when we come to Mark chapter 10. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And as he travels, he teaches. We have followed him down the mountain and to Caesarea Philippi, then down through Samaria and across the Jordan to the east side into the land of Perea. And that's probably where he is now, between Perea and the straight trip west to the city of Jerusalem. And there are two stories that take place that I want to put together, I think as you will see in a moment, because they are indeed so similar. And these two stories picture to us how to come to Jesus Christ. They're real life stories that took place in the lives of individuals, but they picture how we are in and of ourselves spiritually to come to Christ. And the first story begins with verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the little children come to me, and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as thee. And I submit to you that Jesus is going to give us a a positive picture of what it is to come to him, to come to Christ. And that positive picture is reflected 
by the children. But to teach this story, as Jesus often did, he was, as one of my friends used to say, a corking good storyteller. And Jesus is telling the story or using an event that takes place. It's a shocking story. It's a story about people bringing little children to Christ. If you dig in a little bit deeper, actually, into the original language, uh, you'll find out that these people most likely were their parents, and the masculine pronoun is used to show that it wasn't just the women, but the men. People were bringing their kids, parents bringing their children to Jesus so he could place his hands on them and bless them. By the way, that was the right of the rabbi, which means Jesus was being recognized as a rabbi by these people. Very significant. And he was going to pray for them, as the scripture will tell us, and give them a blessing. It's also interesting to note that in Mark's account, he uses a Greek word that talks about young children that could be probably from the cradle to maybe age 10. But Luke, the doctor, uses a Greek word that only refers to infants. There's no contradiction here, but it shows that all kinds of kids were being brought. Even little babies were being brought to Christ so that he could bless them. Justification, I think, for our own baby dedication and parents bringing their kids for the church to pray. People knew that the touch of Jesus had power. They'd seen it. He touched a blind man, and he could see, and he would touch another, and he would be healed. There was blessing in the touch of Christ. And so maybe that song, He Touched Me, oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that filled my soul isn't far off. So they wanted to bring their kids so that Jesus could touch them. Customary, I'm sure, all the way back to Genesis chapter 48 when the patriarch Jacob put his hands on the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and extended to them the covenant blessings. But here's the shocking part of the story. The disciples said no. You know, it seems to me the people who should have been bringing people to Jesus are now prohibiting people from coming to Jesus. And if I put the very best possible spin on it, I would say on the disciples' behalf, they simply were trying to keep Jesus away from unwanted intrusions. After all, the crowds were descending upon Jesus in droves. And you had the religious leaders opposing him and demons even attacking him, and the crowds just out of curiosity wanting to touch him and be close to him. And I'm sure the disciples were protecting the Lord Jesus, and they said, you know, he just doesn't have time for this. He's got a tight schedule. You've got to stand off. Don't bother him with all of these kids. Besides, what can they do for Jesus? Now, if someone important comes, we'll make time, right? But my schedule's too important to have little kids come who have no standing at all in life. I I imagine the parents standing in line with their kids with enthusiasm and excitement like parents with their kids at Disneyland waiting for a ride. And then someone coming out saying, sorry, ride's over, shut down, get out of here. (laughs) 
You think the parents were upset? Confused. But get this. Jesus was indignant. (laughs) We think of him as the mild savior, and he is. A bruised reed he would not break. But he turned over the tables of the money changers, and he got angry at those who did not teach the truth, and he got indignant with his own disciples. Why? Because they were mis, get this, they were misrepresenting the character of God. God doesn't have time for you, was the message, and in particular, for your kids. And Jesus was indignant. This is a compound Greek word, two words that simply mean much and grieved. Great disgust. It's the very same word that is used, indignant, this, being, this idea of being upset, when Jesus rebuked the wind and said, peace be still. What grieves the heart of God should grieve our hearts as well, shouldn't it? What grieves you and delights you tells a lot about you. And someone who doesn't have time for kids, there's just a flaw in that character. I guess they forget they were one once. Now too important to deal with them, I guess, but not Jesus. Don't misunderstand the character of God. And so Jesus says, don't hinder them. Let them come. And I love this. By the way, if you have an invitation from Jesus, it matters not who tries to stop you. You come. You come, and the warm arms of Jesus will welcome you. Come and welcome to Jesus. One of John Bunyan's favorite or famous sermons. Come and welcome to Jesus. You want a piece of Jesus, he wants a part of you. He wants all of you. And he warmly invites you to come, even though the rest of the so-called intelligent adult world may tell you no. You come. So distorting his grace and somehow diluting his character, Jesus says, come. And then he makes a lesson out of these kids. And I'm sure there's many lessons that we could gain, but the first lesson is this. You come, the right way to come to Christ is to come like a child who has nothing to give, nothing to offer. Notice verse 15. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child can't enter in. This is vital, this is important. You've got to be like a child to take in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Children are humble and trusting and simple and honest and unbiased and receptive. Sometimes. (laughs) Not always. Uh, We had five girls, and now our five girls have given us five and a half grandsons. We have another grandson coming in February. We just like to get in a rut and stick with it. (laughs) And I love these kids, but you know, my grandchildren, I won't mention the kids because they would understand this, but my grandchildren are not always simple or humble 
or trusting or unbiased. Sometimes they are. But there's a mark about kids that is consistent. They are helpless and have nothing to offer. No status, no position, especially in that society. No status whatsoever. You think about this with kids, right? I mean, Herod slaughtered 2,000 of them, and it was okay. He killed his own kids, and that was fine. The apostle Paul said, a child is no different than a slave, Galatians chapter 4, until they receive the inheritance. But Jesus loves kids, and he has a way of getting into their hearts like no one else can. And that's why parents bring your kids to Christ. And sometimes they'll make a decision as a young child that will stick even through the difficult teen years when they face unbelievable trials. Even if they fall and they're led astray, put into their hearts the truth of the gospel at a young age, and that can come back to save. Warren Wiersbe says we tell children to behave like adults. Jesus tells adults to behave like children. When you come to Christ, you have to come with nothing. And that's why some of you don't come to Christ. You don't think you're helpless. You think you've got status and position. So that's one of the great lessons We haven't gotten to the second one yet. The second lesson is Jesus loves kids. He took them into his arms, verse 16. And he placed his hands on them just like the rabbi did, and he blessed them. And again, the original language gives this idea of intensity and repetition. As the parents were persistent in bringing their kids, Jesus warmly embraced them with great affection. And I I can't see him with a gloomy face. I see him with a smile. Don't you? And with joy. And maybe he played leapfrog with them. I don't know. But I do know this. Jesus loves children. He affirms and proclaims the spiritual capacity of children. If there was ever a text relevant to child evangelism in all of the Bible, it's right here. Children can authentically come to Jesus Christ. Now, we have to be careful that we don't force conversions in our kids. In our desire to see them become Christians, we can easily do this. But Gallup, in one of the latest survey polls that uh, the, the Gallup organization did, found out this. 19 out of 20 people believe in Christ before the age of 25. I don't know where the breakdown is, but if you break it down you know, between under the, age, or under the age of 12, I think that would be a high, high percentage. D.L. Moody once returned from a meeting, and he said to his friends, there were two and a half conversions, and someone said, oh, two adults and a child? He said, no, two children and an adult. <laughs> he said the children gave their whole lives, the adult only had half a life to give. <laughs> that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? But when you come to Christ, you come with nothing to give. You receive salvation as a free gift. And if you're not willing to take the kingdom of God in from the position of a helpless sinner who has nothing to offer like a child, you'll never enter. Your pride will keep you out. 
And that's why the great hymn emphasizes this important truth. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. And some of you aren't saved this morning because you don't think you're helpless. Right after that story. Well, we don't know right after. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the Synoptic Gospels because they have a similar view, you will find out that they take some of the same stories, but they put them in different orders. So we don't know really what happens exactly in this situation, uh, whether these stories followed one or the other, but we do know that Mark put them together intentionally in the writing of his Gospel, and that's because they are so similar. The next story, verse 13, or verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So notice the similarity. They're both coming to Christ. But this is the negative illustration. This is how not to come to Christ. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good but God alone. Verse 19, you know the commandments, Jesus said. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, no false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. Basically, commandments 5 through 10 in a little different order. Teacher, all of these I've kept since I was a boy, that is, since I was bar mitzvahed. Outwardly, I've obeyed them all. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So here's a shocking story, like the first. Only shocking this time because it's Jesus who seems to be so harsh at someone who comes to him, right? I mean, think about this guy. If you put it all together, you'll find out, according to Luke, that he was a ruler. He was a man of authority. The kids who came to Christ had no position. This guy had influence. He was wealthy, the scripture says. And he was earnest, sincere, polite, religious. He, he had it all. I mean, most of us evangelicals will give that, have that guy sign a decision card, you know, and get him in the church and give him offering envelopes before he left. You, you won't find a better convert, right? But Jesus sees the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. Kids, nothing. Jesus sees the heart. Rich man, great. Jesus sees the heart. And why was Jesus so upset? Because he did not know who God was. He said, good teacher, and Jesus interrupted him. Wait a minute. You you can't call anyone good except God. The rabbis would never allow you to call them good because there's only one who is good, and that's God. 
And you'll find it repeatedly in the book of Psalms. The Lord is good. His goodness is everlasting. In fact, only God is good. If you and I are good, it's because we derive something from God. None of us are inherently good. And any goodness you and I have comes from the good God who gives good gifts to all. Only God is good. So Jesus is saying, wait a minute. Do you understand who you're talking to? Are you saying that I'm God? And he is, but I don't think the rich young ruler knew that. Here's my best guess. This was an attempt at flattery. Don't we often give people big titles so that we might get what we want? Jesus said only one is good, and that good one is only God. So then Jesus does something interesting. He says, uh, hey, do you know the commandments? By the way, he knew he knew the commandments because Jesus knows everything. And he he mentions some of the commandments. And this guy answers back, I've done them all. Now, outwardly, that may be true. He might have been a good, moral, outstanding young man. Had to be a man of some degree of integrity to hold his position as a ruler. And Jesus wasn't denying that, but Jesus wants to go deeper than that. Isn't it interesting? Every man will proclaim his own goodness, Proverbs 20 tells us. We're quick to tell people how good we are. Yep, I've been keeping all those commands. And maybe he hasn't killed anybody, and maybe he's always given the right testimony in court so he's never lied, and he's never been unfaithful to his wife, and he has no little idol back at home that he worships as a god, and Boy, down the line, he looks good. The guy says, I've kept all of these commandments. By the way, is the law a ladder so that you can climb on it to God? No. Is the law a washing detergent so that by keeping its commandments, you become clean? No. The law is a mirror to show you how dirty you are. And anyone who looks at the law of God and says, yep, kept it all, no problem with me, doesn't understand the law. So what does Jesus do? This is ingenious. The Lord Jesus points to the very first commandment. Not by saying, hey, what about number one? He says, okay, I want you to go, you lack one thing, Honest heart is what he lacked. You lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Aha! The way to get eternal life is to take a vow of poverty, to sell everything I own, and that by selling everything I own, I can purchase eternal life. No, no, that's not it at all. Jesus is taking the first commandment, which says you shall have no other God's. Or maybe the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. This man did have another God. His God was things, his wealth. And instead of saying, do you keep the first, do you keep the 10th, he said, let me give you a practical challenge. Sell everything you have. I want to see if you want eternal life more than you want 
your temporary possessions. Jesus is not saying that to become a Christian, you have to get rid of everything you own, but he is saying this, you've got to get rid of all your other gods. (laughs) You've got to lose all your gods to follow Christ. And this man, notice verse 22, at this the man's face fell. It's a word that is used earlier in the Gospel of Mark to talk about an overcast sky. Things became gloomy. He was discouraged. And he went away sad, still rich in this world's goods. But a pauper as far as eternity is concerned. He went away sad because he had great wealth. What a lesson. And notice what it says in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. I think there's another lesson we can learn among the many, and it's this. Jesus loves sinners, right? I've had people tell me he only loves the elect. He only loves the children of God. He only loves those who are going to believe. Yet I read in my Bible, for God so loved the world. Yeah, but that's before people come and trust Christ. Well, here's a person who's rejecting Christ. And the Bible says Jesus loved him even in that rejection. You see, the love of God cannot be changed. He loves you so much he died for you. And he longs to have you embrace him. Even though you reject him, he still loves. So in both stories, there's a shocking story of how people misrepresent the character of God, and Jesus is able to come in and confess, I love children, and I love sinners, and I long to have them come to me, but the way to come to me is as a helpless child, humble in heart, or to come to me with the empty hand, no other gods, and trust me. And when you come to me like that, You will walk away with life that never ends. The last thing this rich man wanted to hear was that he had to get rid of all of his possessions. He walked away with a heavy heart because he was holding on to the things of this world. It might be position. It might be wealth. It might be your status. It might be relationships and family, but you're holding on to something that's more important to you than God. What will my friends think? If I came to Christ and became religious, what would my coworkers say? What would my parents say? What, what about, and you've got all these questions and they become your gods, unwilling to let them go and follow Jesus. You want eternal life? Come to Christ. Eternal life is to know Christ. He who has the Son has life. But the way to come to Christ is to realize you're helpless and you have nothing to offer and leave all of your gods behind and trust him. It's impossible to receive the gift of eternal life when your arms are full. It's impossible to embrace Christ when you're embracing other gods. As far as I can tell in the Bible, of all the people who came to Christ, this is the only guy who left in, worse, in a worse condition than when he came because he rejected the free offer of the gospel. 
You know, I'm told that one of the ways to catch monkeys is to get a trap that is fixed somehow, and they often use gourds, and they'll cut a hole in the gourd and hollow it out and put maybe in the gourd uh, some type of food or something attractive that a monkey would want, and the hole in the gourd is just big enough for the monkey to get their hand into it, squeeze it into it, and then they grab whatever is in there, but when they're holding on to what they have, they cannot get their hand out. You say, well, how do they catch a monkey like that? The monkey will not let go of his new possession to free himself from the trap. And they walk up and catch them. And there are so many sinners who are holding on, so many of us who are holding on to the things of this life, and we will not let go, and we're trapped. And Jesus says, let go and embrace me. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Two shocking stories that talk about the same thing, coming to Christ. One illustrates the way to do it. One illustrates the way not to do it. What category do you fit in? Let's pray. And while her heads are bowed and her eyes are closed, let me ask you this question, my friend. Have you come to Christ like a child? That is, you've come from humble position with nothing to offer. And have you been willing to turn from all your other gods and make Christ your Lord and Savior? You don't have to sell everything you have, but you need to stop worshiping it. You need to stop living for it. And give your heart without reservation to Jesus Christ. Have you done that? If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you're not sure you have, do it right now. In the quietness of this moment, just say, Lord Jesus, save me. And I guarantee you, if you come like a child with nothing to offer, with a humble heart and an empty hand, and you say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior, the Bible says he will save you this very moment. And you'll be the newest Christian in this room. Father, speak to hearts today that people might trust in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.